This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got a great guest here again today for you today. He's a mobile home park owner-operator, been in the business a few years, and he's going to tell us some of his uh, some of his stories, some trials, some tribulations, and uh, some tips to help help you, our audience. Please help me welcome my guest, Adam Sobieski. Adam, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Ferd. Appreciate it, buddy. You got it. Well, I know you, I know you a little bit. We've talked several times in the past, but for our audience that may not, please give us a little bit more of your background, how you got in the space. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into real estate investing back in 2009 is when I started buying single family ho- homes after the recession uh, here in San Diego. And, uh, you know, basically came around to 2014, 15. And obviously it was hard to get yield in terms of any decent cash flow on buying anything uh, in the San Diego, California market. I was looking at apartment buildings and uh, yada, yada, and, and kind of spinning my wheels to find a decent uh, cash flow. Uh, return and I wasn't really going to get it here. And so my my friend Justin Donald, who I believe you know, and Nick Najar, uh, you know, they were in mobile home park investing, and I was like, ah, trailer parks. Like I, you know, why why would I do that, right? Like I, you know, I think I'd been in a mobile home when I was a kid once, but uh, you know, it wasn't on my radar in terms of an asset class in in real estate. And, uh, you know, my, my friend Justin was just basically telling me, hey, you're going to get the best cap rate and the best cash flow yield. And uh, it's at least worth your while to go to the, the boot camp, right? So I went to Frank and Dave's boot camp, um, did that. And obviously, when you go to boot camp, it kind of opens your eyes to the industry. And I knew that, that it was something I wanted to, to do. So I started calling via Mojo Dialer, uh, my buddy Nick Najar and I cold calling basically every park in the state of Illinois and Wisconsin, which is, uh, it's a lot of work. My, my background is in sales. And so I, I wasn't afraid to, uh, to hit the phones, but I wasn't really getting where I wanted to go. And I'm like, I'm trying to convince sellers to, to sell me their park. And I'm like, I get a little bit impatient. I'm like, you know what? All I want is that the, at this time, a few, four, four years ago, I just want an eight, nine or 10 cap. I want to try this out, get a 20% cash on cash. There's all these brokers with parks for sale already. Let me just try to get one of these and, you know, try it out, see if this is even for me, right? Running a trailer park. I don't, I don't even know if this is for me. So let me just buy one of these broker listings. And so I was looking at the listings. Um, sure enough, I then got introduced to Stothy, uh, Steve Edel, who you've had on your podcast, who runs the due diligence partners, uh, because I was going through Frank and Dave's 500 page due diligence book. And I'm like, this is not I need an expert here, right? This is definitely not something that I'm comfortable doing every step. And it's beyond a full-time job, as you know, right? So the, he was the best find that I ever had with Stoffy. Shout out to due diligence partners. So long story short, I tied, tied up a park in Peoria, Illinois, in Chillicothe. Uh, went to this park. Thank God Stoffy flew out there. This was before he had a team himself, looked at it. We were about halfway through uh, our meeting with the park owner and manager, and he's like, hey, you know what? Let's go grab some food. We go out to lunch, and he's like, just drop this deal. Just, <laughs> you know, par- parks are registered sex offender. 
just had another uh, sex offense in February. Uh, half the names on the rent rolls are still falsified at this point. He's got like two of his kids living in the park, haven't been there for four years. He's like, just drop this park. This is not the good deal. I don't know anything. Right. So I'm like, Oh, it's fine, but okay, we'll we'll (laughs) drop it. Uh, sure enough. I'm in Peoria for five days. I make friends with the neighboring park owner, uh, this guy named Mark end up becoming buddy, buddy with him, invites me to his family dinner Sunday. He's like, Hey, you know what? Uh, we have a family friend who owns this park in Rockford. Let's take a drive. You know, you got nothing going. Let's take a drive together tomorrow. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll go look at a park. I, I've heard of Rockford, second biggest city in Illinois. Let's go take a look at that. So we drive there together, right? I just had met this guy a couple days earlier. We drive three hours together in my rental car to Rockford. We go meet with Terry, who owns uh, this park in Rockford that ended up being 100% in the floodplain. And so I, I ended up not even making an offer on that park. But I sent her as a seller lead to Casey Tome, who's a broker at Sunstone. And I said, hey, man, if you ever have anything in the Rockford area, I like the MSA. Just let me know. Right. And so sure enough, I sent him that seller lead to to get a listing. Three weeks later, he sends me this park uh, in the Rockford MSA. It's in Belvedere, technically, but in the in the Rockford MSA. It's little little park, 30 lots. Um, and he sends me that listing. I ended up buying that in, uh, May of 2019. The lot rent was three thirty. Uh, when I bought that park here, two and a half years later, we're at $430. I bought the park for 400 grand, 30 lots, hundred percent tenant owned homes, city water, city sewer, uh, no floodplain, really nice park. Some, some seventies and eighties homes, but then also a couple, you know, some double wides and some, uh, vinyl side shingle roof, nicer nineties and two thousands homes. And I bought it for 400 grand, which uh, if you just run the quick math on that, we're at $430 lot rent now. Um, And we'll probably go up another 40 bucks this year, um, 30 lots. And so we're, you know, at an eight cap, probably at about 1.4 million. Uh, And the cool thing, the cool story about this park is that the park manager has been managing that park for 15 years. She's a rock star. Her husband's the maintenance guy, which usually isn't a good setup, but they're just very high integrity uh, people. And they do an incredible job. That park is as hands-off of a 30-lot park that, that you'll ever have. We have occasional water leak, and that's about it. And we have never missed a rent payment in three years. Uh, 20 of the 30 tenants are on auto pay, where it auto withdraws from their bank account on the 5th of every month. And we've never even served a five-day notice, ever. So not only have we never had an eviction. So you know you hear a lot of horror stories about the trailer park business, and it is an operations business. But every once in a while, when you, you kiss a couple frogs, uh, you get lucky. So the, the long, the, the short story on that is that I had paid due diligence fees on the Peoria Park uh, and on another park in Peru, Indiana. So this was my third park that I was paying DD fees on. So if I didn't close on that park in Rockford, I might have just invested in a fund or done something else because I was going to be over about 35 or 40 grand in due diligence fees if I didn't close on uh, my park in Rockford without ever having bought a park. So, but I have, you know, again, I wasn't coming into the business. Some people come into the business at different areas, right? Some people come in it and we're already worth a couple million bucks. Some people come in it and they have $10,000 to their name. So I think you have to know kind of like in football down in distance, you have to know like where are you at in your chapter of investing? What's your, what capital do you have? And kind of what's your investor DNA? You know, what, what's your risk profile? I wanted to start with a small park, see if I liked it. And then I just closed uh, three months ago on park number two in Springfield, Illinois, 52 pads, 
41 occupied, uh, city water, city sewer, no floodplain, really a nice park. Um, and so really excited about that one. And um, I'll probably buy another two or three parks until I run out of my own money. And then I guess I'll have to uh, really see if syndication is for me. You know, I think there's different ways to go in this. And a lot of people talk about a thousand lots, 5,000 lots, but you could just have a few really good parks. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And one thing that I did that's not traditional is that my 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 first park in, that I bought in Rockford, you know, is worth around at least one four at this point that it, it would sell for is um, its own free and clear. So there's no arm. I didn't like getting emails from my banker. You know, it's against the principle of leverage, but you know that cash flow of you know eight to ten thousand a month, you know, kind of offsets most of my lifestyle expenses with the other real estate and things that I have going. And it was a very personal. Uh, thing to say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna buy this park, it's perfect little park, city utilities, all resident owned homes, works like, you know, clockwork, and we're just going to keep that thing forever. And, you know, that's kind of the play on that one. Now the Springfield Park is interesting, and I'm doing a lot of talking. So I'll before I go into the Springfield Park, what uh, I'll, I'll kick it over to you with with some some, uh, maybe some thoughts on on that. I just figured I'd share my journey there. No, great, no, great stuff. You know, I know you've told me that before, and it's, it's it's definitely inspiring. So it's it's great you can do it from remote too. You obviously picked a good park um, with the Rockford one. You know, good lessons learned already on that. Yeah, your approach of not having debt is definitely uh, unique. Um, and, mm -hmm. You know, obviously not everybody can do it, and everybody can do it long term or on multiple deals because we all have a finite amount of capital. But yep. um, there is there is definitely a risk reward profile. It's good that you identified what your investment criteria were. I'm curious mm -hmm. on um, why Illinois and Wisconsin coming out of California. I get not in California because cap rates are so low. Um, California being a blue high regulatory state, a lot of people don't like it. Illinois yep. is generally a blue high regulatory state. So we probably had some natural awareness of that. And then right. I'd also like to touch on the, the, the Mojo system as far as uh, cold calling, because I know people, yeah. a, lot of people, a lot of people do use that, but a lot of people have no idea what it is. So maybe <laughs> touch on that as well. And, yep. and, and are you still doing it or have you just gone to the broker route now that, you know, you bought the first one through uh, Sunstone? Really good question. So this is where it comes down to building relationships. So the, the seller that I bought the Rockford Park from, uh, we became friends. So even though I got a really good deal and I actually kind of retraded that deal by like 20% at, at kind of the, the fin at the finish line, because there were some density issues that we weren't aware of and he was okay with it. We stayed friends and he had been uh, sending out mail and cold calling owners in Illinois for years. Well, he moved all his property to Texas, including his park portfolio. So the Springfield seller lead that I got didn't come from Mojo Dialing. It wasn't from a broker. It came from one of his mailings that he just gave to me for free because we became oh. friends, no assignment, didn't want any money. It's like, hey, don't want any money. We're friends. I would buy this park tomorrow if I didn't move all my assets to Texas. And he just kind of gave it to me on a platter. Um, so it's interesting what happens, you know, when I, when I connect the dots, you know, even looking at sending that seller, seller lead to Casey Tome and then Casey gives me his pocket listing in Rockford, that Rockford seller then gives me uh, his direct to seller lead that he got in Springfield. Good things happen in this business when you create the, the right relationship. So no, I do not mojo dial anymore um, for parks number three and four here. Uh, gonna be going the broker route, but also looking to, to kind of add on to the MSAs that I'm currently in, which is Springfield and Rockford. So 
Why do I like those MSAs? Rockford's a really big MSA, almost 400,000 people, second largest city in Illinois. I like the employment there. I like Northern Illinois, even though it's a blue state, the lot rents are high. So even at this park, we're at 430, but, but lot rents can, can go much higher uh, versus Southern Illinois, obviously. Right. Uh, Springfield, I like that MSA, even though it's not quite as good as Northern Illinois. It's just, if you drive around Springfield, it's got giant medical buildings. It's medical and government, right? It's basically like United States would have to fail for Springfield to, to fail, even though the lot rents are a little bit lower. So why did I start in Illinois and Wisconsin? I think like anybody else in this business, for maybe similar reason to you, you kind of start where you're comfortable with. Even though I live in San Diego, my wife's family and my whole family is actually from Illinois and Chicago. So our family's in uh, Libertyville, Illinois, Waukegan, Illinois, Tinley Park, Illinois, and uh, Brookfield, Wisconsin. So I'm like, hey, worst case, something happens. I don't know what I'm doing. At least I could probably send a family member out there to deal with something. And we're out there a few months a year anyways. So I can, you know, meet with park manager, do, you know, do things that, that I need to do physically when I'm there. So kind of comfort level uh, going backward. I probably maybe would have stuck more to Wisconsin because Illinois is so blue, but, you know, no rent control yet. So still pretty comfortable uh, in Illinois. And I don't think rent control will happen because, uh, you know, of the politicians. And, you know, I think it's more of a, uh, hey, we're trying to help you, but I, I don't think that legislation is coming, but, but who knows? So Mojo dialing doesn't happen anymore. My next place is to buy more parks near where I'm already at because I have such a great, such great systems and staff at the Rockford Park that I would like to add on there. My, my park manager could manage a 400 lot community. She's an absolute rock star. And her husband, I call him MacGyver, can fix anything for cheap. So they're very, they're, they're a huge part of that asset. So I, my goal is to get more lots under their control there. And then in Springfield, uh, I've been looking at, you know, the Springfield deal is more of a capital gains place. So on the Springfield park, I do have debt on that park. So I did take out debt on that park. That's going to be a little bit more of a capital gain strategy. So the, the, the Rockford parks, I think probably keep forever cash flow. You know, again, I'm not a syndicator. And then the Springfield park, we bought the 52 space park. The park right next to it though, is an 80 space park also on city utilities, 100% occupied. That park about 20 years ago was all 130 pad park. So right now, 130 pad, anything 100 plus pads in Springfield as one park is selling for 55 to $70,000 a lot. So we wow. bought for, I bought for 20,000 a lot. I looked up the, the tax records, the guy that bought the 80, we were, I was trying to buy it. The guy who bought the 80 pads park, park right next to me bought for 1.5 million. So he got it about for 20K a pad too. And I don't know if he knows what we're sitting on that this thing, there's just a fence. It's all, it's two different parcels, but it could all be one park. My goal now is now that we've contacted him is to team up with him and say, hey, do you want to list this? And I don't, you'd have more knowledge on this than me for is to say, hey, let's package this thing together and exit here for 60K a pad, right? I'll sell, I bought for a million, I'll sell for 3 million. He bought for 1.5. You know, we can, we can sell 130 pad park city utilities, pretty much all occupied in Springfield for, you know, seven or $8 million and probably wait another 300 days. So we only pay capital gains tax and, you know, kind of take some chips off the table. So that's kind of the initial thought there. If he's not okay with it, then the, the goal is to buy another park in Springfield this year and another park in Rockford and kind of build out where I already have stuff. 
Interesting. No, that's what are you, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that, Bert? Well, you can certainly you can certainly do a joint venture sale. I mean, it's just a portfolio sale. I mean, you'd have to allocate the purchase price amongst the two. You'd have you'd both have to be parties to a contract, or you'd have to agree to if I was the buyer, for example, you would sign a contract for me and I would say, look, I'm only going to pay you 50 to 60,000 a pad of this, what I consider a premium, if I also have the guy next door in our contract. So it's got a cross termination, cross default. Um, it could either be in one contract with three parties, or it could be in two contracts with me, me as the buyer in both parties. Um, yeah, that's not a problem. There, there'll be some zoning issues, perhaps some permanent, you know, be run separate permanent, you need separate title commitments. Um, mm, got it. You know, things like that. Um, you might be able to merge them. I mean, um, I'm trying to think if I have any parks that were two and two and one, I have more than one parcel, but I mean, like, so for example, if, if one of you has an easement over the other, want to use the master, want to use the servant and that easement, you can abandon the easement if you own both parts or you could jointly agree to do it. You could modify it. I just did that. So I just did. I just, I just did a refinance on a, it's a 90 pad, 92 pads park I have in Illinois, but I have approvals by the state to add 13 more pads, but I don't have it done yet. And I was putting it on Fannie Mae refinance the, the main park and the rules there, you can't touch, really touch the asset once you got dead on it. And I was like, well, can I just add 13 more pads? Give me a year to get it all done. They're like, no, you can't. Well, I didn't want to delay my refinance. So I separated the expansion parcel as a separate parcel. And then I also had about 45 storage units that I separated as a third parcel. But there was only two curb cuts to the main road. So I had to give the main park in the back an access easement over the expansion parcel so that it could access the second curb cut onto the main road. So I had ingress egress. And then for the storage parcel, I had no road access. So I had to give it easements over both the main mobile home park parcel and the expansion mobile home park parcel so that I could independently sell off the self storage unit, which is what I intend to do once I fill it. Um, so I'm, I'm at like 75% occupancy when I bought it was zero. So it's, it's kind of been a labor of love filling that storage, but I'm not really in the storage business. So mm -hmm. I plan on just sell, fill it up and then, and then sell it for its, you know, terminal value, ideally. Um, so you can, so you got to just look at the title work easements, things like that. There could be zoning or permitting issues. Um, but I mean, not looking at it, wouldn't know specifically, yeah. but yeah, I mean, th that's sort of a creative solution. I mean, that's, let's think if you have value with creative solutions, you can you know, get paid for it. And then, you know, the other guy too, I mean, your other option would be try to buy that guy out or, or sell to that guy. Right. Um, you know, cause, cause it, you, and, may have, you may have different investment timelines. This guy maybe has no debt on it, just like your Rockford park and he wants to hold right. it for 25 years. Well, and I want to sell it. Well, then right. he wants to buy yours and maybe you don't get the extreme premium, but you get more than you would selling yours to me, for example, is an a la carte deal. Right. And, and we know, we know from looking at the public record of the sale, he was 1031 money when he closed uh, in October last year, I closed December last year. So I don't know if he's going to want to do it again, but you know, if he can, he bought for one five, if he can sell for, you know, four, that's pretty, pretty tempting. And the reason I, I see that is that I've looked at the other listings timeout communities owns a, you know, 150 pad park, uh, two miles from us. I'm sorry. Yes. Communities. Um, and then timeout communities owns like six or seven parks within a few miles of us that are over hundred spaces. So we get into that, you know, or like you said, or I can look to buy him out and, uh, get some, uh, Fannie Freddie non-recourse debt. Cause right now we, right now it's a, a small bank full recourse loan, which I'm okay with. There's no density issues, not in a floodplain, et cetera. But 
you know, if I could buy his park, then I could, you know, get some better debt. So that's sure. kind of uh, what, we're, what we're looking at there. And, and I do like the small parks for, for what it's worth. The park I'm looking at right now that's in the Rockford MSA to add on is another 31 space park. Um, but it's something where, you know, I'm looking to hold it. It's in a good area. Uh, you know, and I don't mind the little park. Sometimes you get a better deal, right? When you start Certainly. to get to that 50, 80, 100 pad, you're starting to compete with bigger money, you know, and, and uh, some of these little parks that people aren't looking at can, uh, you know, really be cash cows, you know, especially if you go the route that I don't recommend, but if you go the route, let's say you're in a certain financial position where you pay all cash and then the cash flow becomes really, really good, you know, especially if you're getting a, you know, a 12, 15 cap, which sometimes you find on these little parks, uh, right. even now. So no, this, this it just kind of depends on your, on your, on your goals. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of the values of smaller parks is they're not as competitive to buy. Right. So you can buy them at a higher cap rate for sure. Lower price per pad, not as competitive. You know, one, you got to look at your exit strategy, right? I mean, um, cause you're going to, you're going to have the same problem on the exit, unless you can, can cobble them together. Either as a scattered right. site in one geographic Metro or as a total portfolio sale. I mean, so, you know, two 50 pad parks are probably, not worth as much as 100 pad park, um, but you can probably buy two 50 pad parks for the same for 80 cents on the dollar from which you could buy a 100 pad park. Right. Uh, and, and it's, it's all, and not like everything, right? It's fact specific and geographic location specific. Like I'd rather, I'd rather own 50 pads in Springfield than 100 pads in Carbondale. Uh, right. Or our South. Um, so, right you know, there's a, there's a number of factors at play. So, um, so t tell me too, Adam, how are you, how, how, what is your workload from a management perspective? I mean, we, we go to the boot camp, and, and I, I've been there and lots of people in there and uh, overall it's, it's a great program. One critique some people come at, have coming out of there is you, you get the impression you can manage a park on four hours a week, um, mm. which perhaps your Rockford park, you can with good management from afar. Clearly you're not doing site visits weekly. Other parks, if you're infilling 50 pads, for example, it's infeasible to do it in four hours a week. Um, yep. Do you have a day job? Do you, do you, how much do you have to spend on time on this? Do you have other partners besides your manager or is it just you directly supervising the manager on these parks? Yeah, really, really good question. So on the Rockford park, I mean, it, at least initially taking it over, it takes time. You know, that's what people have to understand with park number one, everything's harder, right? Just, just going through the nine training sessions with Brent manager. I mean, my background is sales, not IT. I, I can't even believe that I ever did that. Right. But it's good to learn it and know it and, and whatnot. So everything was harder getting clients on auto pay, getting, but now, but my background is business and sales. I own another business that brings in cash flow that takes zero hours a week. So I'm in a little bit of a unique position, but I kind of use that background to be like, okay, how can I gradually get all these things off my plate, especially because I have talent, right? My park manager and her husband, they are they have competence, they have skills, and, and we have trust. And so I can delegate, right? And so eventually I got everything, sending violations, towing cars, dealing with the snow removal, dealing with the water leak, just anything that ha even, even when I need to get the tree, a tree trimmed or whatever, my park manager will do that. I kind of have made it <clears throat> where everything that would be my problem now has become her problem. And she has a credit card for the park. And I'm like, hey, if it's under two grand, take care of it. I don't want to know about it. Right. So we're, we're there right now. Do you start there? No, that, that definitely takes some time. So I'd say the Rockford park takes 
you know, zero hours a week. You know, there might be a week where we have a water leak where I have to spend an hour or two into that. But really, she has I've empowered her because she's talent. And you're not going to get this probably with most park managers to go out there and figure it out, get quotes, get estimates, negotiate. She she knows, you know, how I operate at this point. But that's taken time. Right. So at this point, that doesn't take much time. The Springfield Park would be a full time job right now because we do have some infill to do there and we have a good amount of park owned homes that need to be sold. But I'm 51 percent majority owner on that park. My partner, who, you know, Nick Najar runs that park. So he has parks in that area. And for me, I'm, I'm a lifestyle investor. I was going to drop that deal. And just, I called Nick. I'm like, dude, you know, cause he knows that I have the park. I have other real estate in San Diego and I have another business that brings in cash flow where I'm in a unique position that I don't need to work. I don't have a day job or anything like that. And so I'm always looking for how do I not put effort into this? And so <laughs> I, I'm called Nick. I said, listen, dude, I know you got like $150,000 or $200,000 assignment. Feeling. I'm like, this is a really good deal direct to seller. I've worked it. I've already paid Stothy DD. I'm like, dude, I just want my DD money back and uh, a little kicker. You assign it. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, let's do it. And Nick's like, Hey man, let's just buy it. I'll do all the work for it. And I'm like, you'll do all the work. And he's <laughs> like, yeah. And you can have control. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll do that yeah. deal. So okay. I, yeah. So I, it was almost like an offer you couldn't pass up. Plus Nick and I, we go back 15 years we were in a similar business together. We're, we're good buddies uh, and all the rest of it. So it just made sense to me. I'm always looking at not just what's my return on investment, but what's my return on time, energy, and aggravation. Aggravation being the main one. So to me, I don't want to live a great lifestyle when I'm 60 or 70. I want to live a great lifestyle now. I got a little baby who's one. I like to surf. I live in San Diego where the weather is always nice. I'm not in this business to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Now that might be different on somebody who's syndicating and wants to have 5,000 lots, but those aren't my goals. I know what I need to get by. Uh, I know what, what we need to be financially independent. And sometimes it's diminishing returns where you're getting richer just to get richer. And you, it's kind of like, why, you know, who are you competing with, right? Are you competing with others? Are you competing with your own ego? Are you competing with your own perception of where you think you should be? If it's something you love to do, that's different. But uh, to say that I love the mobile home park business. No, I I'm passionate about the outcome that it provides for my lifestyle, but I am a uh, do the minimum amount type of person. Uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of me. Now, if you're coming into the business with 10 grand to your name and just getting started and you don't have any real estate and any capital, and all the rest of it, then you're going to be on a totally different page. But if you're coming into this business and you're already pretty well off and maybe already financially free, then you can play the game a little bit differently where, you know, frankly, on both those parks, I work maybe an hour a week max. Uh, and because I set them up that way. Um, but again, that's not going to be realistic for many other people. So again, down in distance, you have to understand where you at as an investor, where you at in your chapter of investing, what are your lifestyle goals and what can you pay off? What can you pull off here? You know, and that's uh, so my, my setup is definitely unique. No, that's, that's interesting. That's, yeah, definitely unique. That's great. I think my wife would, wants to hear that episode. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. you say, don't work 40, 50, 60 hours. She'd be like, I'm fine if you pick any of those numbers. Just don't pick a bigger number. So, um, sure. That's, that's funny, though. That's, that's great. You can pull that off and um, done well for yourself and, and set up a good team. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, what other, Adam, what other lessons learned or tips you have for our audience uh, before, we, before we break up here? 
Yeah, I, I think my biggest thing is uh, due diligence, right? So uh, I am just a huge fan, and Nick's used them for all of his six parks, and Justin Donald has, I don't know, eight or nine parks, whatever. And for me, both of my parks, the deals I haven't bought, the three deals that I, you know, paid almost 40 grand on DD on that I didn't buy, those are more important than the two deals I ended up with, right? So again, shout out to Stathi Edel and due diligence partners. If you don't know what the hell you're doing and you have this 500 page due diligence handbook, especially if you're from 2000 miles away like me, if you have capital, if you're coming into this business even decently well off, that due diligence, they're basically a staff that you don't have to pay for, right? Because they're calling the city. They're, get, they're doing all this work and they're doing it at less of a cost than you would have if you hired an employee to do that with payroll, et cetera. So I look at them as almost my staff, but I don't have payroll or any employee liability. So again, because I think that if I had started this journey with a nightmare park, that maybe I, I wouldn't be here, right? And that, and that can be uh, how that goes, right? If your first park's an absolute nightmare, you lose money out, whatever, maybe you'll stick it out and, and stay on the journey. But I just think that if you can get an expert to help you with the due diligence versus I mean, Ferd, I remember, and I was spending valuable time, right? I was already in a place where I had cash flow coming in from another business that offset my expenses, et cetera. When I was calling these other parks to get park comps with a trailer park accent, and one of my, I think my wife overheard me do, you know, hey, you know, what are y'all charging for it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I calling these other parks for comps with a trailer park accent right now? That doesn't seem, that seems like a 15 or $20 an hour job that if you have trust and competence, which you do when you hire a professional due diligence team, that can be delegated. Because if you're running due diligence on multiple parks at the same time, hopefully you don't have a day job because that's going to take up all of your time, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So I think if you want to, if you want to be under contract on a couple of parks at the same time, or if you want to make sure that you don't buy a terrible park, have a, just like we have a, an attorney, right? Who am I going to go to if I'm going to package this neighboring park with my current Springfield park, I'm going to go to you. You're going to write that contract. You're our attorney, right? You're, you're, you're the guy. So same with due diligence, like to do due diligence on your own, if you don't know what you're doing to me is an absolute terrible decision. And I think that if you use a professional due diligence team, just like you would use a professional real estate attorney, uh, they're worth their weight in gold. If you have any capital whatsoever, that's a good way to allocate it. That's a, that's an interesting interesting view. I, I definitely can see the value of that. I mean, obviously hiring a third party person while you don't have a long term um, payroll, you have a, a relatively large short term payroll. So a lot of people, if you don't have, you can't hire those guys for twelve hundred bucks, right? And so a lot of people got to get right. started on you know, do it myself. I'm I'm a fan of learn it myself, but then as soon as I know it, outsource delegate. it. You know, right? Like, yep. I mean, outsource, but delegate. So I've hired a lot of full-time employees. Like, okay, I don't need to do rent manager anymore. I had them, I don't even have access to the right. rent manager anymore. I sit in P and I don't even do, I don't do bank recs. I don't do the same level of P and L review. I, I still review investor reports, things like that. So, um, but I, yeah, again, I've learned it first. I've, you know, then I outsource it. Your, your approach I think is different where from a lifestyle perspective, Look, I don't even want to learn it because I'm not. It's going to take me too much brain damage to learn it the way that Stathi does. So hire that guy and the six to one half dozen the other. Right? There's there's not necessarily a right answer. It's just uh, what's your what's your vision? What's your goal? Like you said, if you don't want to, you know, you don't need to get to a thousand pads or five thousand pads. I mean, I just did a podcast today on 
20 pads I've got in Des Moines. Yep. It's like great. 20 great pads, podcast. 20 pads. You can make a half million dollars. If you do it right. You know, find it right. Yep. Do it right. Um, yep. You could have 500 pads and lose your, lose your everything. Right. So. Yep. It, um, and I think that's a, a question. That's a question. Most people don't ask to like coming into this is like, that doesn't get talked about sometimes like how, how rich are you coming into this business? You know, if you're somebody who's pretty well off you have a business that brings in three, 400 grand a year or whatever, okay, maybe, maybe it's a limiting belief that, Hey, I need to learn this before I delegate it. I, that's what I found. I'm like, you know what? I, I'm not going to learn every single thing before I delegate, even in my other business. I don't know how to do everything. And you know what? I'm never going to learn DD as good as a professional DD team. Right. And so I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to learn as much as I can, but at the end of the day is, do I have to learn everything first before I delegate it? Or is maybe that a limiting belief? So I questioned that core value and belief in myself. And I came to the conclusion that I would like to learn everything first, if it's lifestyle convenient and then delegate it. But in some situations, uh, I'm just going to delegate it just like I would to a real estate attorney. And I'm not really going to, going to learn it first. Okay. So because of the time that it takes, sometimes you just uh, have to delegate it right off the bat. And I think that is an important thing uh, to know when you're coming in, because if you do have a day job and you're doing due diligence on one or two parks or whatever, sometimes that if you're a salesperson, for example, that's taking money out of your pocket. And so if you look at the 10 or 15 grand that you might pay for that versus your opportunity costs on losing those sales or losing those attorney fees or losing whatever, you might just be better off paying that money. Now you inspect what you expect, right? So I don't have to master due diligence. I now become kind of a trust, but verify. I'm, I become a professional inspector where I'm inspecting what I expect from the DD team. And I'm looking at it all closely, but I'm not doing it myself. Right. No, good stuff. I mean, it's, there's a great book called work less, make more. And they're really big on figure out your effective hourly rate and then don't do anything lower than that rate. So not that you're too good for, not that I'm too good to do my own accounting or too good to stuff my own envelopes, but it would be ineffective use of my time. And as such, I don't get to work on my highest and best skills and I don't get to produce the maximum optimization and uh, output for my business, whether financially or otherwise. So yep. totally with you on trying to optimize what you're best at and, and focus on that. Yeah, it's and for me, it's all about opportunity costs too, right? So if you're right. doing all that 500 pages of DD on a park, are you making offers on other parks? Are you looking at other deals? If you have a day job as well? No, you, that's all you have time for. And now you kind of get tunnel vision on, well, I have to buy this deal because I put all this time in. But if you come into this business with just a little bit of money, then you can get that DD outsourced. Now you can make more offers. You can look at other deals. It gives you walkaway power, right? And the ultimate negotiation power is your ability to walk away. But if you're so caught up in DD on one park, you are losing that walkaway power because you're not looking at other deals, right? So it's not, so it's opportunity costs on your time, money, energy, and aggravation. Those are some things that I think people don't <coughs> think about uh, in terms of that. So, yeah. All right, Adam, great stuff. Hey, where can people catch you? Where can they reach out to you after this? Yeah, they, they can text me, call me, voicemail me on my cell phone number. I do live with my cell phone in Do Not Disturb 24-7. I have one favorite in my phone, and that's my wife. So it is impossible to reach me. But if you text me, we can set up a phone call. That's a uh, lifestyle decision I made uh, a long time ago when I got out of the sales business that I wasn't going to have my phone chiming at me all day. Um, but you can certainly call or text me. My cell phone is 760-310-6714. And uh, 
yeah, it's a good way to reach me. All right. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bert. Have a good one. You too. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.